0: This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume, bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show.
1: Hello, my name is William Lundy, and I will be your host for this episode of The Law School Show. Our guest for today is Leonid Sirota. Professor Sirota is an associate professor at Reading University in the UK. Before teaching law, Professor Sirota clerked at the Federal Court of Canada and obtained an LLM in legal theory and a JSD from the NYU School of Law. He has published extensively on administrative law and constitutional law issues. He is the founder of the Double Aspect blog, which comments on administrative and constitutional law and was named Best Canadian Law Blog in 2014 and runner-up in 2015 and 2017. Professor Sirota, welcome to The Law School Show.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: There's a paper I wanted to uh, discuss with you today, which I think is quite interesting, uh, which was published uh, in 2020 in the Ottawa Law Review. It's called Amuring Dicey's Ghost, the Senate Reform Reference and Constitutional Conventions. And if I understand the paper correctly, your your take is basically that the Supreme Court in that decision has effectively departed um from the strict distinction it made uh between constitutional conventions and constitutional law with this this notion of of architecture and you you agree with some aspect of that but also uh critique it from uh, other aspects as well so before we get into that why don't you uh maybe Explain to us a little bit about that, that sort of where this distinction or this purported distinction between conventions and, and constitutional law comes from.
0: Right. So, so let me start with a sort of self-made definition of conventions, uh, which I think will be con- possible to be consistent with the orthodoxy, but not committed to some of the orthodoxy's more questionable assumptions. So conventions are constitutional rules which constrain the behavior of political and constitutional actors and limit their freedom of action or in most cases, the scope of their discretionary powers. But these rules are not stated in what are traditionally regarded as authoritative legal sources, that is to say, constitutional text, statute, or judicial decisions. The orthodox view of conventions is that not only are they not stated in those traditional formal legal sources, but they also could not be enforced by the courts. This is their defining characteristic, as stated by A.V. Dicey in his work on constitutional law in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century. And Dicey's position has been the accepted orthodoxy in the uh, in the Commonwealth ever since. It was accepted in the Canadian context by the Supreme Court in uh, what we know usually as the patriation reference. Uh, So that was the set of references which ended up appealed to the Supreme Court on the question of whether the Canadian Parliament had the authority to unilaterally request the patriation of the Constitution, Uh, as you probably know authority to amend the Canadian constitution until 1982 rested with the parliament of the United Kingdom in its capacity as imperial mm-hmm. parliament. The Canadian parliament wanted to bring the constitution home, uh, change it by adding a charter of rights, uh, an amending formula and some other provisions, for example, section 35, which uh, constitutionalizes some Aboriginal rights. So. Provin- some provinces, most provinces, in fact, at that point were opposed. Uh, prime Minister Pierre Trudeau said, "Well, I will go alone. I will use my parliamentary majority to request unilateral, uh, unilaterally make this request." And provinces that were opposed to this, to the prime minister going to London with this request for a constitutional amendment, they asked their courts of appeal. Eventually, the Supreme Court: Can he do this? And the Supreme okay. Court by a majority uh, of seven to two said, yes, he can do this as a matter of law. And then by a different but overlapping majority of six to three said, but he can't do this as a matter of convention. But we just say, you know, this is a reference. We're not making an order. We can't enforce conventions. We couldn't make an order asking the prime minister to, comply with conventions. But we're just saying, he's not allowed to do this as a matter of constitutional legitimacy. Legally, Mm -hmm. yes, but legitimately, no. So this is how uh, the distinction between law and convention is uh, stated very clearly in this majority decision of the Supreme Court, or majority opinion, I should say, because it's a reference. There are some other cases as well. Uh, We can go into that if you want. Uh, But this is the leading one, the the patriation reference. And the patriation reference is a leading case, or at least was a leading case, not just for Canada, but it was also cited with approval in the UK by the UK Supreme Court in in the Mm -hmm. first Miller decision, where there was an issue of, of conventions that came up and they refer to the patriation reference for this proposition that courts are not, as they put it, parents or guardians of conventions, they are merely observers.
1: Mm-hmm. And um, from what I understand, some of the, I, I guess, maybe the motivation for keeping you know, this distinction between conventions and law is, is part of a concern that about the judiciary overstepping its 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 role um, and sort of entering into the political arena—is that—is um, that your understanding of sort of the the motivation for this this kind of strict distinction between convention and law?
0: So, yes and no. I I think if you put it in this way, if you put it as a matter of the judiciary overstepping its role, that begs the question of what. Is the judiciary's role in relation to conventions. And if you simply stipulate Mm -hmm. that it is not the judiciary's role to enforce conventions, and I think that Dicey, for example, in his work, that's essentially what he did. He stipulated that he says, well, those conventions are not enforced by the courts. Why? There isn't much of an explanation. And then Mm -hmm. for subsequent writers and judges who just accept this, that this is how it is, that Dicey is right because he's Dicey, then to say, well, it's not the court's role to enforce conventions, that begs the question. Now, there are other arguments that some of those writers have also advanced. They have said conventions are insufficiently clear. They are not uh, precise enough for the courts to either perhaps even understand them or at least enforce them. Or they have said, well, the courts uh, should not meddle with uh, these highly political rules because doing so will produce bad consequences, either in the sense of undermining the independence of the courts or their insulation from politics, or perhaps it will interfere with the sound working of our high politics because the courts are are meddling without fully knowing what they're up to. Mm -hmm. So those are are more substantive arguments. But to simply say it's not the court's role to enforce convention, well, that depends on, on explaining why it is not the court's role now in the patriation reference the supreme court of canada makes another suggestion and says well it's not the court's role because courts cannot enforce rules that originate in uh, the political practice as conventions right. do and this is a perplexing argument in, in that the court so the court says well the court would be Making new rules, those rules haven't been recognized before in, again, either a constitutional text or a judicial precedent. So the court cannot create them now. This is a perplexing argument in that mm-hmm. courts have recognized constitutional common law rules uh, in the past. And the question is well why why wouldn't they recognize conventions as uh, as new? constitutional common law rules. But that was what the Supreme Court said. We we cannot make new rules. There is no common law of constitutional law. And yet they do do say at the same time that actually there are common law constitutional rules.
1: Yes, and I guess that kind of leads us into the Senate reform reference where, um, or your paper on the Senate reform reference, where you say that you know implicitly court is relying on these these constitutional conventions about the senate to strike down a law as as unconstitutional so m- maybe you could explain um you know why how how you came to that conclusion
0: so so let's take a step back first and just remind mm-hmm. uh, the listeners about the Senate, Senate reform reference and what it was about. So the uh, government at the time had uh, developed several somewhat different uh, proposals for changing the way in which uh, senators would be chosen. Uh, there were different versions of, of those reforms, but the basic idea was that there would be elections which would be described as consultative and non-binding, but people would be elected uh, in uh, the provinces of Canada to represent those provinces in the Senate. And the expectation would then be, although that would not be stated in the law, but the expectation would would then be that the prime minister who normally recommends the appointment of senators to the governor general advises the governor general to appoint such or such a person to the Senate, uh, the prime minister would be at the very least under pressure to appoint those people who, to recommend the appointment of people who have been elected as prospective nominees. So that was the the basic concept. And, and, And then there were a couple of other questions, including the abolition of the Senate. Mm-hmm. the supreme court so the here's why this is potentially troubling uh, this reform the senate generally speaking defers to the house of commons because it knows that it is not an elected body and so it doesn't have the legitimacy to be an equal partner of the elected House of Commons. The Senate traditionally is, most people accept that the Senate can sometimes propose amendments to bills. The Senate, I think, is often recognized as uh, being perhaps more attentive to the detail of legislative proposals than the House of Commons. There is often a a lot of expertise among the members of the Senate that Mm -hmm. sometimes the Commons lack. So the Senate can tinker sometimes with legislation, although there are criticisms of that, but that's it's a mostly accepted role for the Senate to tinker with legislation, but mm-hmm. to give if eventually give way to the uh, wishes of the House of Commons. If the Senate comes to consist of people who have a democratic mandate, although ostensibly appointed by the prime minister, but appointed by virtue of having a democratic mandate, the Senate will come to see its role quite differently. There is no longer a reason for the Senate to be as deferential as it has been to the House of Commons. And so this changes the way the Constitution works. The deference of the Senate to the House of Commons is one of the universally recognized conventions of the canadian constitution it's not quite as firm a convention as some others it's not as firm a convention for example as the governor general assenting to legislation that has been passed by the senate and the commons Mm -hmm. but nevertheless the the principle of the senate deferring to the house of commons is is a convention so when the Supreme Court, but it's not recorded in, in the Constitution. If you read the text of the Constitution, uh, Constitution Act 1867 in particular, Section 91 says that uh, it shall be lawful for the queen by and with the advice and consent of the House of, of the Senate and the House of Commons. The Senate is there. The Senate comes first in the definition of how legislation is supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. So if you just read the constitutional text, There is nothing about the Senate being deferential to the House of Commons. And so the federal government said, well, we want to change the way the Senate uh, effectively is appointed. There is also what the Constitution says about the appointment of senators itself is that the the Governor General shall summon qualified persons to the Senate. It doesn't even mention the Prime Minister. The Constitution generally doesn't mention the Prime Minister because- position of the prime minister is itself a creature of convention. Mm-hmm. And the constitution doesn't say that senators should be people who are recommended by the prime minister in his or her discretion. doesn't say anything like that. So the proposals that the government put forward weren't going to change anything to the, the letter of the Constitution Act 1867. And so the government said, well, we are... Not we're not really changing the law. Uh, we are introducing an additional layer to our internal operations, uh, but but we can do that uh, because we're not actually changing the Constitution of Canada in a matter that affects uh, the Senate or the House of Commons. The Constitution of Canada is again the constitutional texts that are referred to in uh, the in annexes to the Constitution Act 1982. The Constitution Mm -hmm. of Canada is, uh, of course, judicial interpretations of these texts. It is perhaps constitutional principles that have been sometimes recognized by the Supreme Court, uh, but those principles don't seem to uh, stand against the proposed Senate reform. So there is the Democratic principle, for example, that says that in, in political power should come from the people and look, we are proposing to increase the uh, overall democ- dem- democracy in the constitution. Mm-hmm. So that That was the argument and the Supreme Court unanimously says no, no, because although you're not trying to make a change to the established constitutional sources, you are nonetheless making a change to the Constitution. You're going to change the way in which the senators are really appointed, and you're going to uh, change the position of the Senate in relation to the House of Commons. But the way the Supreme Court describes this is you're going to change the architecture of the Constitution. You're not changing the text. You're not trying to circumvent a binding judicial decision. You're not interfering with a relevant constitutional principle, but you are changing the architecture of the constitution. And what is the architecture? Well, the way the court defines it in the Senate reform reference, it speaks of a set of assumptions underlying the constitutional text about how, assumptions about how this whole thing is going to operate. Mm -hmm. And then we are left with the question of, well, what are those assumptions and what is the court talking about? And, okay, the Senate reform project is scuttled for the foreseeable future, but now what? And many of my fellow uh, academics who are looking at, the the Supreme Court's decision are wondering, and understandably, well, what other reforms might now be foreclosed? They are wondering, for example, at the time, so the Senate reform reference comes down in 2014, uh, in the 2015 election, uh, federal election campaign, uh, electoral reform is front and center uh, the party that, Eventually got elected with a majority. Was promising that uh, this was the last election that we're holding with this electoral system, the first past the post system, and we we're going to change our electoral system. Well, is uh, some uh, some uh, people are asking? Well, wait a minute! Isn't uh, the first past the post system part of the assumptions? about how the constitution is going to operate. And is that, does that mean that the system is part of the constitutional architecture such that parliament cannot unilaterally change it and uh, change would require an amendment with the consent of uh, two thirds of the provinces and half the population. Uh, That's just one example. There are other reforms that, we might think of as interfering, perhaps, with constitutional architecture, and be, because the court doesn't give us a very good definition of what constitutional architecture consists of, and so this is this is the the backstory to, uh, or part of the backstory to to uh, how I came to the subject. The other part of the backstory is that uh, Fabien Gelina and I wrote before the Senate reference, the center reform reference was decided, uh, we wrote an article saying, look, one key component uh, or one key consideration that the court really needs to pay attention to is uh, those conventions about how senators are appointed and the convention that the Senate defers to the House of Commons. A realistic and sound un- answer to the reference questions has to take into account the fact that the government's the federal government's proposals are potentially going to interfere with conventions and mm-hmm. in in the reference itself the court doesn't mention conventions at all in in its opinion the the court speaks a lot or in in parts of its opinion the court relies a lot on the this concept of architecture, but it doesn't say anything about conventions. And yet the the answer that it gives seems consistent with the idea of making sure that those conventions that are central to how the Senate operates are protected. And so my take on the, the Senate reform reference was that When the court speaks of assumptions underlying the text, those assumptions can be conventions that the court doesn't want to mention, perhaps because it is uh, still feeling the pressure of the orthodox conception of conventions as not being legal rules, and it would be something of a Jurisprudential revolution to say no. Actually, this, the 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 patriation reference was wrongly decided. We shouldn't have embraced this distinction. Dicey was wrong. The UK Supreme Court in the first Miller decision was, uh, well, that that came later. So we, that no, the, that um, that's not relevant. Uh, but to say that all those people before were wrong, uh, the court, the Supreme Court, doesn't want to go there. But mm-hmm what are those assumptions underlying the text it is the conventions and if you and this is not just a conjecture that those the conventions were assumed to underlie the text because if you go into the confederation debates if you see what the framers of the constitution in 1867 thought about what they were doing, you can tell very clearly, and, and in fact, to an even greater extent that the Supreme Court recognized, that they mm-hmm. knew very well how this was going to operate. They knew very well that the Senate... Uh, so the, the phrase that everybody knows about the Senate is that it's the chamber of sober second thought. And that's right. what the, the Supreme Court says. the The framers expected the Senate to be this... Relatively independent chamber of sober second thought. But actually it's a little bit more complicated than that, because although the framers did have this idea that uh, the Senate was going to be the saucer in which you pool you, you pour the proposals that come out of the House of Commons for them to cool down before <laughs> they can be drunk, they also recognized that unlike in the United Kingdom with the House of Lords, members of the Canadian Senate are not going to represent some distinct social class, despite Mm -hmm. the fact that they're supposed to be the wealthier members uh, of the community uh, with the property requirements that were were quite serious at the time. Uh, Still, the framers say, no, they, they are not going to be from a distinct social class. They're not really representing Uh, a distinct set of political interests. They come from the same community as the members of the House of Commons. And Mm -hmm. uh, so they they will fully understand that their legitimacy as members of the legislature is uh, is limited. The the real uh, legitimate part of the legislature is the House of Commons. And so they will... uh, Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, yes, they might uh, cool things down. Yes, they will supply sober second thought, but they will give way to the House of Commons. And this is why we want an appointed Senate. Uh, for example, uh, George Brown said, that's, that's why we want an appointed upper house. The uh, legislature of the province of Canada uh had for a period of time an elected upper house. He didn't like mm-hmm. that. He said, no, that creates the possibility of conflict between the Senate and the House of Commons. And then uh, we get gridlock, uh, which we are all familiar with from the United States uh, in the recent years and perhaps even decades uh, quite a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. So we don't want that. Uh, and this is why we should have an appointed Upper House, so that it will know that it ought to give way to the House of Commons at least after uh, perhaps an initial uh, attempt to cool things down a bit. Uh, and we have John A. Macdonald who is saying, "Look, the ultimately uh, the sympathy, or I don't recall if that's the exact word he uses, but ultimately the the harmony between the Senate and the House of Commons is going to be brought about by the fact that." is going to be the prime minister recommending senatorial appointments and he will recommend the appointment of people from his own party. So, and this is in fact how the Senate operates over time. Mm -hmm. uh, An incoming government manages to install its partisan allies in the Senate and uh, to create its its partisan Mm -hmm. uh, majority there. So, uh, the framers were not naive. I think uh, the Supreme Court did them a bit of a disservice by just presenting the sober second thought aspect of, of their expectations, and then some people have said, "Look, the you know the court takes this naive approach. Maybe the framers were naive. No, they were actually." Uh, perhaps even cynical men. They certainly were very practical uh, politicians. They knew how the sausage was made. Uh, So so they expected those conventions to uh, be operative really from from day one uh, as as they were. And then, of course, when the amending formula is written in in 1982 and it uh, speaks of the method of selecting senators, well, those conventions have now been around for... Uh, what 125 years uh, or 115 years uh, at that point, and everybody understands them. And mm-hmm. the the amending formula is written the way it is uh, with those conventions in mind.
1: So the the amending formula is written with these um, these conventions in mind. Um, and so something I wanted to to clarify is well, how do these proposed changes so these proposed changes that the government wants to bring in to make to have these consultative elections—they're—they're—they're they're, they're not going against the specific text of the constitution. But you're saying these—you know—if you have consultative elections and and the prime minister appoints these people who've been um, recommended by voters, uh, that will undercut. That will somehow undermine these these. Um, two conventions of one prime ministerial appointments and two um, deference from the Senate to the House of Commons.
0: Yes, and so and and, and by undermining these conventions, uh, the entire system that uh, was set up is changed. So the system would now operate differently with a democratically legitimate Senate. Now, so when we say that. Uh, And and so the the Supreme Court says, and as a result, this would amount to a change in the architecture of the Constitution. And again, architecture meaning those assumptions about how the whole thing is going to operate. Uh, My take on this is that although the, the, the court is right that the proposed reforms would have effected an important change. And it's not enough to say that, look, the Senate is still there. We are not touching its place in section 91. Uh, mm-hmm. The governor general is still summoning senators on the recommendation of the prime minister. So we're not changing that. Uh, nevertheless. The change that will come about as a result of this legislation is very significant and it is a constitutional amendment. So I think the court is right to this extent. What I think is unfortunate is this resort to the notion of constitutional architecture because it's not well explained. It's confusing. Mm -hmm. And some very smart people have suggested that maybe it encompasses other things that are not conventions and we we can't even really quite know what exactly it encompasses what we can be pretty sure about is that advocates in the future will try to say look this thing is also for example for example again first past the post electoral system this is part of how we expect the constitution to operate. And so it is Mm -hmm. also entrenched as part of the constitution's architecture. And so it would have been clearer and it would have uh, limited the powers of the court for the future to say, to acknowledge candidly that what it is really concerned with are conventions and that those conventions are protected from amendment, that gets us to the question of which conventions and and how do we know are all the conventions of the constitution protected from possible amendment or how, how does that work? Uh, We are right now, if I'm right that constitutional uh, architecture includes conventions, well, we have to ask, well, which ones? Mm -hmm. The alternative approach that I suggest in the article is that we should actually refer to the text of the constitution itself, including the text of the amending formula. And we should ask, are conventions part of the context in which this text is written and in which it should be understood? So when Mm -hmm. the amending formula in section uh, 42 of the the Constitution Act 1982 says that the powers of the Senate and the method of selecting senators can only be amended under the 750 formula, two thirds of the provinces with half the population, Uh as well, of course, as the Senate and the House of Commons. How do we know what are the powers of the Senate? and how do we know what is the method of selecting senators, I would suggest that this does not only refer to the provisions in constitutional texts that speak to these matters, like I think it's Section 23 of the Constitution Act, 1867, that says that the governor general shall summon uh, qualified persons to the Senate. Uh, No, the method of appointing senators includes also the conventional appointment on the Prime Minister's recommendation. And the powers of the Senate include the Convention of Senatorial Deference. And mm-hmm. you cannot amend these things, you cannot bring legislation to amend these things uh, except through the amending formula. So those conventions are part of the context in which the amending formula itself, the language, the text of the amending formula has to be understood under, I think, any sensible approach to constitutional interpretation, you have to read the text in context. Now, there are disagreements about you. Right. The, the time reference. Are you reading the text in context as of today, or are you looking at the meaning the text had at the time when it was enacted. That's the difference between uh, living constitutionalism on the one hand and originalism on the other. But Mm -hmm. sound approaches to both living constitutionalism and originalism would recognize the importance of context in in understanding constitutional text. And uh, this context, I submit, includes conventions.
1: And um, just a, a question specifically on on that on the reference to the the powers of the Senate and the method of appointing senators. so for me it's 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 kind of clear how uh, the legislation that was proposed would kind of affect the the method of appointing senators if you know you you take into account that uh, the assumption the underlying assumption the the convention that the Prime Minister recommends the the appointees to the Governor General and then the Governor General appoints them. Um, but for me, it was a little less clear of how this change would um, kind of reduce the, or affect the, you know, the, the powers of the Senate. In in a way, it. Uh, I mean, the the powers of the Senate, in one sense, are sort of defined or, or explained in the Constitution. They they basically have the same powers as the House of Commons, um, and so it's not clear if, you know, the, is this legislation. Uh, is it really expanding the legislative authority of the Senate? It's not really contracting the legislative authority of the Senate, at least not on its face, but, but you're saying it, um, and it's not, it's not stating, you know, the Senate, uh, you know, should, um, you know, should, uh, should not defer to the house of commons. It's not saying. Right. um, Right.
0: So, so it's, it's an indirect effect, but I think that, So far as I know, everybody who commented on those reform proposals at the time Mm -hmm. when they were being made agreed that uh, Senate, at least from the moment when you have a majority of the members of the Senate who uh, who have a democratic mandate, at that point, the Senate's Will no longer there will the the reason for the convention of deference will no longer apply. So uh-huh. you know, all all conventions exist for some important constitutional reasons. We have constitutional practices and traditions uh, that exist that are just. Practices and traditions—that's just how we do things. We don't really have to. Uh, so, the, the classic example that, uh, that I always give uh, is the uh, Minister of Finance wearing a new shoe, new pair of shoes. On budget <laughs> right. day. This is yes. this is a rule. All the ministers of finance for decades have acted in this way. So, this is a, uh, an established rule about how the uh, a cabinet minister is going to behave but there is no constitutional reason for it. It's just, I, I, I don't think anybody actually knows how that got started, uh, but we cannot uh, relate it to any sort of constitutional principle that would warrant it. By contrast, those conventions that we uh, are familiar with they all are related to some important constitutional principle. The convention of uh, senatorial deference to the House of Commons is related to the principle of democracy, as are the conventions of responsible government, as is the convention that the governor general assents to uh, legislation passed by the Senate and the House of Commons. Uh, We have some conventions that are related to, to other principles. For example, there's a convention limiting the ability of Uh, ministers to criticize judges that's related to judicial independence and the rule of law. We have conventions about regional representation on the Supreme Court, which are related to to federalism. We have conventions about uh, alternating between francophone and anglophone uh, governor generals. Uh, and We have a perhaps made up convention of alternating between uh, Quebec and common law chief justices of Canada. Mm-hmm. So those those relate to the duality of, of Canada. So those are all important important constitutional principles. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, if you make senators, uh, if you give them a democratic mandate, albeit a little convoluted, a little bit indirect, but still you're given uh, you're giving them this democratic mandate. The reason for the convention of deference goes away. They yeah. no longer have, uh, they, the reason uh, used to be that they lack this democratic authority as was recognized by uh, Brown and McDonald way back when. Uh, you take this reason away as again, Brown anticipated and knew they will start opposing the will of the
1: uh, House of Commons. There is no longer a reason why they shouldn't mm mm-hmm. Mhm. And do you think the um so so now I I I think most people will agree that um well generally speaking the Senate does defer to the will of the House of Commons but in the past and not in the in not so distant past the the Senate has uh, at times defeated legislation passed by the House of Commons or, or that was um that received like uh yeah, majority support in the House of Commons so um do, do you think that does that does that undercut the the argument at all that um, there's this convention that that should be sort of recognised if if it's if it's not really a hard and fast rule because sometimes the senate actually doesn't defer to the house of commons.
0: Right. So 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 one thing to say is that although these things have happened, they have happened very rarely. Outright defeats mm-hmm. are are very rare, and. They are uh, very sharply criticized when they happen. Mm-hmm. But what uh, Andrew Hurd, who uh, is the scholar who literally wrote the book on constitutional conventions in Canada, he has uh, he suggests that we can think of conventions as falling into slightly different categories. Some are absolutely rigid, and uh, any departure from them would be uh, dramatic challenge to how the constitution operates. Some are mostly rigid, but they there is a little play in, in the joints. And then some are more flexible in the sense that you can imagine occasional departures from those conventions, occasional breaches of those conventions. Mm-hmm. But if the uh, convention is entirely abandoned, the constitution would change in an important right. way. Uh, And so you can think, for example, of the convention that the governor general assents to legislation passed by the House of Commons and the Senate. That one is quite rigid. And and it would be a constitutional crisis if uh, tomorrow the governor general decided not to assent to legislation passed by parliament. Now, the crisis Mm -hmm. would presumably be resolved by a phone call to the queen and the governor general being removed. But right. uh, nonetheless, that would be a, a very fundamental uh, breach of convention and, and not just a breach of convention, but an affront to how the constitution operates. The right. convention, to give a non-Senate example of something that's a lot more flexible, think about, again, this, the convention that ministers refrain from criticizing uh, individual judicial decisions. Mm-hmm. Ministers have been known to do that. The current prime minister has done that uh, in at least one case. He was criticized for it. It was not appropriate for him to do it. But if it only happens once and if it is criticized and uh, there is a pushback against it and then it doesn't happen again for many years, you can't really say that the independence of the judiciary has been compromised. So there is a bit of flexibility. We can live with those uh, failures provided that they are rare and occasional and ideally provided that they receive pushback. In in the case of uh, the Senate's deference to the House of Commons in particular, there are somewhat different views because there is perhaps more than one principle that is relevant here. Mm-hmm. And, and so the, the main principle, of course, is the democratic one, which says that the Senate has to assent to the uh, to legislation passed by the House of Commons. You could imagine the Senate playing a role in defending some other principles. Uh, for example, if the House of Commons attempts to pass legislation that is blatantly in violation of, of minority rights, uh, you could maybe mm-hmm. imagine that senatorial pushback would be more legitimate than it uh, otherwise is in the normal course of events. Uh, mm-hmm. But but or, or you know you could you can also think of uh, I think what happened with the uh, free trade debate in the eighties where the yes. Senate uh, the Senate was obstructive. What the Senate did was in effect it. it the prime minister responded by calling an election on the issue. Mm-hmm. He won the election resoundingly, and then he appointed those additional senators to um, uh, override that recalcitrant majority. So, probably the Senate shouldn't have opposed this policy, but the the ultimate result was that it uh, it this resulted in an election, and uh, democracy had its. So, uh-huh. so we can live, again, and that's not to justify what the Senate did on that particular occasion, uh, but we can live with these things if they happen very occasionally and uh, eventually democracy has its way. But uh-huh. I, and I don't, so the fact that a handful of such cases have happened in a few decades, and they have, but... If it's a handful over the course of several decades, I think we still have to say that there is in fact the practice, uh, and more than the practice, but the strong convention of deference. Mm-hmm. And we know that the, there, are, there have been cases where we know that there was initially opposition in the Senate, there went to a, a proposal from the House of Commons, the Senate, perhaps even tried to push back and make amendments and send the matter back to the house of commons. But when the house of commons passed it again, the Senate said, okay, well, I guess you win. So that's, mm-hmm. that's how we expect this convention to operate and, and that's how it does operate.
1: And so, so just uh, one more thing on, on the sort of a relationship between the house of commons and the Senate. You no, know, one question an observer might ask is well you know do we really need to constitutionalize this convention of deference do we really need to sort of read this into the text of the constitution because if we look at other commonwealth jurisdictions if we look at for example uh the united kingdom uh they had a similar uh sort of issue with uh, you know the house of commons representing the popular will the house of lords um not representing not being um having a democratic mandate and having the ability in theory to thwart um legislation that was approved by the house uh but there they 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 just they passed a law to to limit the powers of the house of lords to to basically in in most cases to only delaying uh legislation and so I mean if the if the United Kingdom, which in principle has a similar well, in some respects has a similar constitution to ours with respect to the House of Commons and the the Westminster Parliament, you know, why couldn't you know, we why couldn't we pass a similar law saying, you know, the Senate, you know, can't outright reject legislation, it can only delay legislation. Would that you know, wouldn't that solve the issue and uh, wouldn't that also um you know, give us more flexibility to to regulate the um sort of determine this uh you know f- determine this relationship and and put it on to a, a legal footing rather than sort of reading it into the constitution and you know making it more difficult uh for future parliaments to change that relationship
0: right so um two things one is that the uh what what the uk did by law is what our conventions already do. Not not exactly, mm-hmm. but uh, what the UK did by law was to deny the House of Lords the ability to block legislation. And that's what our convention already does. So we mm-hmm. in a sense, we uh, we don't particularly need legislation along those lines. We already have this rule. Uh, that Mm -hmm. is not in legislation. Now, the uh, other thing, though, is that to enact a law that takes the Senate's powers away, you Uh. would actually need a constitutional amendment because ostensibly blocking laws enacted, refusing assent to laws passed by the House of Commons is within the powers of the Senate. Right. Right. And so to pass the equivalent of the UK's Parliament Acts, you would need an amendment under section 42 of the Constitution Act uh, 1982. Mm -hmm. And now the example that uh, you could have given that goes the other way is Australia. In Australia, uh, the Senate is elected and can oppose legislation uh, passed by the House of Representatives. And I don't know how frequently this happens in real life, but the famous example of it happening is there. Uh, and they have, uh, it's it's also, so again, I'm not an expert on how this works, but they have mechanisms to normally, uh, to try to bring about uh correspondence between the partisan inclinations of the Senate and the uh, House of Representatives. The prime minister can trigger uh, the dissolution of the houses, elections. So they have at least some uh, some mechanisms to resolve those problems that we don't have and which is the one reason why those attempts to create an elected senate without doing anything else are so irresponsible in uh, yeah. typically in the, not in the united states admittedly but in other democracies with two elected uh, houses of parliament there is usually some kind of mechanism to resolve at least some of their conflicts Uh, And that is the case in Australia. But what uh, famously, notoriously happened in 1975 was that the Senate was blocking the budget that the House of Representatives had passed. Mm -hmm. Confidence in a government is normally determined in the lower house, in the House of Commons. But the government was unable to obtain supply. And so the country was... uh, Rushing headlong towards uh, a financial uh, crisis, towards uh, what the Americans call government shutdown, mm-hmm. and uh, to prevent that, the Governor General intervened by d- dismissing the Prime Minister, even though the Prime Minister had the confidence of the House of, Co- of the House of Representatives. The uh, he appointed the leader of the opposition as new Prime Minister. The um, Upper House passed the budget and then the new prime minister called an election. And that was a terrible constitutional crisis because the vice regal uh, the, the, uh, representative of the monarchy intervened and uh, removed from power the person who had the democratic mandate to be prime minister. Uh, so this happened in 1975. It fortunately hasn't happened since then, but these things can potentially happen when you have two elected uh, houses in the legislature. And so that's not to say that we shouldn't have an elected Senate, but if we are going to do that, we should give some very serious thought to possibility of such conflicts happening. We Mm -hmm. probably should try to have some kind of mechanism for resolving those conflicts, either by triggering an election or by some kind of joint sitting uh, where we combine the votes in the House of Commons and the Senate. Uh, There are several different ways to do this, but uh, we we need to give some thought to how we are going to make those arrangements uh, and not try to sneak those reforms in on the sly uh, and without thinking about the consequences. And that was the really objectionable thing, I think, about those uh, Senate reform proposals that the uh, conservative governments uh, of the time was was entertaining.
1: Mm-hmm. And um, I just want to ask about uh, something you mentioned earlier. You, you said, um, you know, the... In critiquing the the Supreme Court's uh, discussion of of architecture of constitutional architecture, there there you know there's the question of what you know what is included and what what's excluded, and uh, by extension, if if we're, we're talking about you know the role of conventions uh, in constitutional law, I mean, what conventions y- you could also ask, you know, what conventions should we you know recognize as you know legally part of the constitution and enforceable and Uh, Conventions, which you know we know are not, you know, what what about the view, you know, well, why why not include all of the conventions, or should we? uh, Right. So 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 the problem is that
0: some conventions seem to directly contradict and nullify the provisions of the of the written text. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, for example, it's a very strong convention. Uh, without which the country would not exist uh today i i am confident of saying that that uh, the uh, federal uh, government does not disallow provincial legislation no matter how objectionable it is uh, i think if the federal uh, government tried to do that with laws from quebec uh canada would no longer exist uh yeah even though there is no shortage of very objectionable laws uh, <laughs> back in the past or now. Right. So this is a very strong convention, but but it uh, absolutely nullifies the uh, uh, fact that the this power of uh, disallowance is in the text. It was used in the early decades of confederation it was used even with the um, Alberta statutes in 1938, uh, Mm -hmm. the the social credit legislation. Uh, So this power uh, exists in in constitutional text. And so to, to say that the the convention that, uh, so imagine a future situation where the federal government disregards the convention and says that, uh, and, and, purports to disallow provincial uh, legislation. For a court to say, well, they don't have the power to disallow legislation because of this convention, that really does amount to rewriting the, the constitution. Or imagine a mm-hmm. uh, Senate voting uh, to you know, block, uh, not, not voting in favor of a bill that has been passed by the House of Commons. And somebody goes to court to say, "Well, this this is law, despite the fact that the Senate hasn't supported it." Again, this this overrides clear constitutional text, and, and so I don't think that we uh, it would be legitimate for the courts to do that. Uh, mm-hmm. Although, as I suggest in in the article, I think you know that line has been crossed already with the patriation reference, and and so the courts could say that the uh, action that is being complained about here is illegitimate it's it's constitutionally legitimate it's unconstitutional in the conventional sense but in those cases I think the, the court would have to nevertheless give effect to the legal provisions that clearly authorize uh, the this this action uh, in, in a different context, though, like the Senate uh, Senate reform reference, I think it, it is fair to say that when we have a text that refers to the powers of the Senate, I think that text has to be read in in its context. And this context includes uh, includes conventions for the so for the purposes of constitutional amendment, right? This text powers mm-hmm. of the Senate is for the purposes of constitutional amendment. you you can't interfere with the conventions that uh, limit the power of the Senate. But for the purpose of section 91 of the Constitution Act 1867, we have a different text to interpret, and so we have to to, uh, get to a different result.
1: So in your view, should conventions only sort of come into play when we're interpreting text and if there's a convention that isn't really related to a particular provision of the constitution then it would be inappropriate for the courts to enforce it or to to sort of
0: so i this is a bit difficult to answer in the abstract and this is why i've mm-hmm. i've not done it in the article and i've always avoided this kind of thing be, because it's it's a little difficult to to anticipate so uh, and and maybe this will will take us to to something that perhaps we we should uh, discuss uh, in, uh, before before concluding. So mm-hmm. what I'm thinking about, at least in in this article, is uh, the how the courts decide on the constitutionality of laws. I'm not concerned, and and I don't think you could mm. be. With uh, the p- potential, the universe of potential uh, criticism of practices that are, might be adopted by the by a government, if those practices are not given legal form. So, uh, for example, if the prime minister criticizes judges, and we think it's inappropriate, uh, as it usually is. Um, <laughs> Well, then what? So in the political sphere, we should be uh, responding to that and criticizing the prime minister and pushing back, saying this is not appropriate uh, for you. Even if... And you know, it may well be that criticism of judges is justified. After all, that's what my blog is largely about, and that's what this article is about. <laughs> I'm criticizing judges right. all the time, but mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not a member of the government, and, and so uh, this is a case where uh, you know we turn that old Latin proverb on its head. The proverb that says that quote, uh, quod leads it non leads it bovi." That which uh, is permissible to Jupiter is not permissible to Knox. Well, sometimes Knox <laughs> have uh, greater powers than Jupiter. Right. So, we should push back as, and especially we, as as members of the legal community, we should push back on inappropriate criticism of the judiciary by by members of the government. But I just struggle to see how this then becomes a, a legal case, and I don't. So I guess you could imagine Roko Galassi bringing a case for, uh-huh. you know, for a declaration that the prime minister's criticism of the court was not appropriate because it, it breached convention. So I, I I think that I would have serious doubts about the justiciability of something like that. Let's just leave it at that uh, because uh-huh. because it, it, it does not involve legislation, but so what I'm interested in, at least with this article, is if the government tries to legislate, then clearly uh, its legislative authorities bound by the constitution, that's what section 52 of the Constitution Act 1982 says. Before that, it right. was the Colonial Laws Validity Act that said the same thing. When uh, Canadian legislatures, including parliament, try to make laws they are constrained by the rules that are set out in the constitution and uh and so that's what i'm interested in primarily
1: and um do you think the conventions might have a different role if we're talking about actions by the executive rather than so if i understand correctly your article is about exercises of legislative power then you know we can use conventions to understand what the text means but if it comes to exercises of executive power, do you think um, it's it's a different, it's kind of a different analysis? Conventions might have a different role to play. Or? So,
0: so, so, so we, let, let's be a bit more precise. Uh, it depends on what what sort of exercise of executive power we're talking about. But for example, so some of uh, the scholars to to whom I respond in in this article are worried that, uh, for example, the, the prime minister, uh, current prime minister's uh, attempts to innovate by, for example, making appointments to the Senate from lists suggested by some independent uh, committee, or his practice to only appoint bilingual judges to the Supreme Court. Well, is that an interference with constitutional architecture? Is that an interference with uh, with conventions, perhaps, mm-hmm. if conventions are understood to be part of, of architecture. And what I say in the article is that there is, uh, you know, so th- there is nothing to uh, really attack when the prime minister is making those discretionary decisions you can't force him to, uh, for example, appoint unilingual judges, right? He uh, is understood as having a discretion as to who is going to be appointed to the Supreme Court. And so if he chooses to exercise this discretion by only appointing bilingual judges, well, that's within his uh, freedom of action. Uh, And it may be that his successors will feel that it would be wrong for them to depart from this practice. And Mm -hmm. once this happens for a sufficient length of time or a sufficient number of prime ministers, you could very well imagine this crystallizing into a new constitutional convention. Uh, I don't think we can speak of a convention as yet because for now we've just had one prime minister who's followed this practice and uh, and so this is just his personal preference. Although he of course would like it uh, to be followed by his successors. But if it, if the next prime minister says, you know, that was this one this person's view on uh, what makes for an, uh, a qualified Supreme Court judge, I don't agree. You know, bilingualism is a nice to have, but not a mandatory thing. And I'm I, I think that for example, I should appoint a person who uh, is uh, you know, from Western Canada choices are quite limited there aren't that many bilingual people I'll appoint someone who is not bilingual and they have other mm-hmm. uh, qualities well that's that's that on the other hand if you know let's say one or two uh, prime ministers uh, following this one also decide to follow this practice then you can easily enough imagine uh, further prime minister in the future who says, you know, I don't know about this, but this seems to be how we do things here. And I'm bound to follow this uh, practice. And at this point, we can say this clearly has become a convention. This is more than just a personal preference. This is more than just a a practice because it is uh, tied to a constitutional principle. Again, of uh, you know, the role of the court in a bilingual and bi, uh, in a bilingual uh, federation, uh, and at that point we can say there is a new constitutional convention. And so we have affected, or these several prime ministers acting in concert, uh, have affected constitutional change informally. Without resorting to the amending formula, but they have changed the constitution uh, by creating a new convention. The key difference between something like that and what the former prime minister was trying to do is that this is not done by law, and and this is this is important because the law is um, an act of parliament, even if it's can be repealed is, until the day it is repealed, it is binding on people who disagree with it, uh, including Mm on uh, future parliaments, until a a future parliament repeals it. Uh, So this, this, what the, the former prime minister was trying to do, was a unilateral change to the constitution. What let's say the current Prime Minister is doing with uh these bilingual appointments to the Supreme Court is a practice that will not change the Constitution until it receives a degree of uh until it generates a degree of consensus around it
1: mm-hmm. and um do you have any um any final thoughts on conventions, the Supreme Court, the Constitution?
0: So let me say a couple of things. So one is uh, that we haven't touched at all on the second Miller opinion of the UK Supreme Court, in yes. which I think, and I, I have written about this, I think that the UK Supreme Court enforced what it took to be a constitutional convention also without saying uh, that it was doing that. But I think that uh, the court in effect developed a blueprint for judicial enforcement of uh, conventions in the future. Uh, So that's, or of some conventions, not all, but some important conventions in the future. So that's one uh, one thing that's worth keeping in mind for those who are interested in, in the subject. Uh, uh, you should read, I think, the Miller decision, even though it doesn't really mention the word conventions, or it does, but in passing and not in interesting ways. But if, if I can engage in this uh, sort of self-promotion, Read read my piece on why I think that it actually does open the door to judicial enforcement of conventions. Uh, And second thing I I would say is, uh, in case there are Supreme Court judges who are listening to this, or in case more (laughs) likely there are clerks or future clerks uh, listening to this, hiding what the court is really doing is not helpful. We would really benefit in this area and in many others. I have a piece forthcoming in the Queen's Law Journal, uh, which kind of makes mm-hmm. a similar point in, with respect to constitutional interpretation. We would really benefit from the court being more candid about what it's doing. And And I think to some extent, the problem is that the court doesn't always fully understand what it is engaging uh with, but I really have the feeling that, that in quite a few cases, including I suspect the Senate reform reference, the court is trying to do things without admitting that it is doing things. And then that, for example, in the Senate reform reference, it was uh, trying to account for conventions about how the Senate operates without admitting that it was trying, that it was taking conventions into account. And and I, I guess I understand the temptation to uh, not admit to heterodoxy. Uh, the court <laughs> wants to, to say, no, no, what we were doing, we're not really doing anything new, we're not breaking with precedent. But the... The wages of that is the uncertainty that the court creates or the ambiguity that the court creates where its pronouncements can be recuperated uh, by either future judicial majorities or by litigants or perhaps by politicians and torqued to uh, apply to uh, circumstances that the court did not anticipate or perhaps did not want Its pronouncements to be applicable to. And um, I think the court should try to be candid, even at the risk of uh, short-term criticism. Uh, But candor and clarity would go a long way, I think, to uh, an overall more solid and transparent doctrine in constitutional law, and that would benefit the court's standing uh, as well as the rest of us.
1: Our guest for today has been Leonid Sirota. Dr. Sirota, thank you so much for being part of The Law School Show. Thank you. It was a pleasure.
0: You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice, right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time, on The Law School Show.